Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is December the 12th, 2023, a Tuesday. Earlier today, we did a show with the Los Angeles Times book critic, Bethann Patrick, who picked out her five best nonfiction books of the year. And each of them focused on the relationship between their author and their subjects. Often those subjects were uh, people or sometimes animals, but none of the books were formal biographies. Uh, a sixth book, um, if, uh, uh, if uh, Beth Ann had had some time to develop a biography, one of the best biographies of the year, uh, has just come out, Becoming Ella Fitzgerald, the jazz singer who transformed American song by my guest, a very distinguished American musicologist, expert intellectual on music, Judith Tick. Um, and she is joining us from her home in Brookline, Massachusetts. Uh, Judith, uh, biography in this relationship with one subject, this book uh, is on Ella Fitzgerald. Have you had a a lifelong relationship with Ella? Yes and no, because it was, it started when I was a young girl and I heard her songbooks in my home and my parents were lovers of Ella Fitzgerald's music. And that's a kind of ephemeral, but nevertheless deep rooted beginning. And then as I got older, and went into musicology, I really did not have much of a relationship with her other than playing and singing the songs. I studied classical music and mainly American classical music. I returned to her in the 1980s when I began to write about women's history and women's history in music. So that I took long view when I got commissioned to write big articles about women's history in music, I came to understand the ebb and flow of around singers in particular. And I wrote a book about another composer named Ruth Seeger, who was part of Ruth Crawford Seeger, who was part of the Seeger family. So I understood, oh, there, there are all my books. That's yeah, lovely. Yeah, we got all your books on the screen. Ruth oh, that, how wonderful is that? I could talk forever. <laughs> no. It's fun to see that. So there you have it. You see a lot of women's history. And you don't see the, the dictionary articles that took so much. But there they are. And when I, after I, I took a break from biography, and then I came back to it in the mid-2000s through documentary search. And, and then I got into Ella Fitzgerald because I taught a course with a friend at MIT um, for the Graduate Women's Studies Consortium. And we read about, oh, look at those lovely covers. We read about black women's history, a lot of it in the 19th and 20th centuries. There they are. Doesn't she look wonderful on those covers? Well, in yeah. any case, we're diverting away. But and look, things are uh, People who are just listening, we have, uh, we have the cover of actually of, of uh, ellafitzgerald.com, which uh, has five wonderful covers from her record. Yes, it's wonderful to see them. They're all from the 50s and 60s. So I got interested again in and decided to write a biography officially in 2013, preceded by, you know, 
emotional and intellectual forays into her life a little bit. You know, I read something that said Ella didn't understand herself or that she was controlled by her managers or she didn't have much choice about what she sang. It didn't didn't ring true to me because I'm a women's historian. They, you know, people say those things about women all the time. So that was a big motivation to dig deeper. It's funny, Judith. Um, a lot of people love the book. Kirkus gave it um, a starred review, calling it as masterful and wonderful as its subject. I, Publishers I Weekly <laughs> described, uh, also gave it a star. I loved it. Uh, but the, and I'm, I'm sure you've seen this, the review in the New York Times, uh, yes. Dwight Garner, was a little disappointed that it wasn't more intimate. He wanted to learn more about Ella. And rather than dealing with that particular review, uh, which is really neither here nor there, I'm curious, how intimate did you feel, you, you yourself as the biographer of Ella, how intimate did you feel you needed to become with her? Or did you feel that as an effective biographer, you needed to keep your distance? Because I think Garner would have liked more intimacy. He he um, made that clear. He wanted me, you know, that's an interesting question. It depends on what you want to be intimate through and how you understand how to be intimate. I think that you get to know Ella best through her music, that how she improvised and related to other musicians, how she expressed her pride in her voice, how she adored her audience. She was intimate with her audience. She was intimate with music. She wasn't home that much. She was a woman who toured 46 weeks a year. And her son, Ray Brown Jr. said to me, nobody toured like my mother. So I can't, I could have, if I had longer, I don't know, I could have, Garner has a point because I certainly knew things about her home and that she had nice furniture and changed her furniture. And I knew that she thought about her appearance. I mean, anyone can see the wig, the hairstyles change over time. I knew something about her family life and I wrote about that. And I wrote about some facts about her in the last part of the book that were quite intimate about her relationships with other men, about the loss of a great-grandnephew, about her grief and her sorrow. And I wrote about mostly how she expressed herself in music. And I think given the shortcomings of the narratives about Ella Fitzgerald, that she was unintelligent or that she was spontaneous and didn't really have intellectual chops, so to speak. All these narratives led me to focus on, well, what do you think? I'm a music historian, I'm on music. And I, I'm pretty sure it was the right decision for me. That doesn't mean that I avoided the other subjects, but there wasn't that much to tell. I mean, she didn't, she didn't have diaries. She didn't write letters. She wrote postcards. She had friends, but she wasn't very introspective. So 
I wrote from the sources. I'd say that is really the answer. So what you're really saying, maybe I'm putting it rather crudely, but music was both the, the back and the front door to Ella Fitzgerald's life. Yes, I think that's right. It would certainly, if you hear her improvisations and you realize how much message is in them, message to other fellow singers, other fellow musicians, you know, instrumentalists, and then to ordinary people like you and me who like hearing quotes from a tisket or tasket or um, Dizzy Gillespie item, when you hear the depth and range of her relationship toward music through these improvisations, that just knocked me out. Or even the way she handled lyrics and understood that words were the message for the music. They weren't the be all and the end all. You know, um, I read that she couldn't understand lyrics and that lyrics were so important. You know, there's a kind of divide in jazz singing. For some singers, they really focus on shaping the words. And I had a relationship, a friendship with a singer like that named Carol Sloan loved Ella, but also loved Billie Holiday and mm -hmm. Carmen McRae. And she sat with me in a deli and said, listen to this word, listen to that word, listen to this. But I was also listening to Ella Fitzgerald change the harmony, throw in a riff, be a jazz risk taker. And also this incredible charismatic voice that brought out the warmth and the texture and oh my goodness, the passion and everything that she sang. You know, if you think about it, which of course I have, that's my opening to tell you something else. Here she is bringing Cole Porter with his sophisticated, cynical sometimes and lyrics to people all over the world who didn't speak English. Do you think they got all those dublantendres? Do you think they understood topical references that Boston and Beans and this and that? No, it didn't matter because she was able to convey the warmth and the lovingness in Cole Porter's melodies that saw and harmonies in his blues nature and his brooding. She conveyed that part of Cole Porter brilliantly. And at the same time, there was a little swing going on so that the momentum was there so that she modernized them. You didn't have to know which heroine was ditching which guy or which woman didn't love this man or all of that plot, which makes musicals work. You just heard one song after another. Maybe that's one of the reasons why some of her foreign recordings have been are so classic, the, the one in Berlin, yes. for example. We are speaking with one of America's leading historians, musicologists, uh, Judith Tick. She's the author of a major new biography of Ella Fitzgerald, Becoming Ella Fitzgerald, the jazz singer who transformed American song. Um, Judith, we've jumped in the, the deep end, really. Um, we haven't even begun to tell our audience who this woman, Ella Fitzgerald, 
is or, or, or was. Not everyone will be as familiar, certainly, as you, and I have some familiarity. So perhaps you might just tell the audience, our audience, the Keenan audience, who aren't familiar with Ella Fitzgerald, who, who was this woman? Why, yes. why yes. is she so important? Okay, some meat and potatoes around this. She was born in 1917 in Newport News, Virginia, to African-American parents. Uh, can you hear that phone? It's, I hope, and uh, let, me, let me not worry about it. Um, and she was raised in Yonkers, New York, and she discovered that she could sing and dance very slowly. She heard Harlem's musicians because Yonkers is close to New York. So these are the, this is the 1920s. She's in Yonkers in 1920s. And then in the 1930s, she moves into this world of swing because she wants to become a professional musician. She wants to go on stage. So the 1930s represents the Ella who's still becoming a professional in some way. The main thing that happens to her is that Ella Fitzgerald in the 1930s represents the rise of the swing song singer. So she's a great swing artist. Just when swing is coming in and Benny Goodman is making the charts, only she did it from the black side of things and worked with Chick Webb, a great Harlem virtuoso drummer. So she represents the huge contribution that black music made to swing in the 1930s. From my point of view, she became famous in the 1930s with one particular song called A Tisket A Tasket. She showed that a girl singer who's usually singing just a little bit with a swing band could be a star. So she elevated the role of jazz singer and captivated the world with the way she sang her swing songs. The big one, A Tisket, A Tasket, really made her name around the world. It, it's a kind of a phenomenon of its own. Moving on to the 40s. Ella Could we just, has, uh, sorry to interrupt, um, I thought you, uh, Judith, we might just also go back to the remarkable story of her discovery at the Apollo Theater on Amateur Night, because yes. it, it seems inevitable now, I guess, because it happened. But it's an astonishing story, isn't it? It is an astonishing story. And it starts really with the notion that there were these, it starts in many places. For Ella, it started in Yonkers when she found out that she loved to sing for audiences at Black social clubs. And I think that's one of the major discoveries of my book, that she had a life as a semi-professional before the Apollo. Mm. She was known as a singer and a dancer. She wanted to be a dancer. She got on the amateur hour. She was trying out in every amateur hour in Harlem. And it, you know, if you've never been on stage and you look out at a dark theater, it's terrifying, actually, if you don't if it's the first time. So this was her first time she walked out there looking pretty disheveled, according to eyewitness testimonies. She had just been succeeded by some dancers. She thought she was going to do a kind of song and dance act. She was influenced by Snake Hips Tucker, this sort of seductive, eccentric dancer. Who knows what she was going to do? But the impresario, the MC, uh, Ralph Cooper knew she could sing, so she stood there frozen because she couldn't do what she thought she was going to do. She came out and the audience booed her because she didn't. Yeah, that know. audience, that Apollo audience could be quite cruel, couldn't it? They could be 
cruel and uplifting if they liked you. Mm. So it took a few, you know, they were discerning. Mm. I would describe them as discerning and demonstrative. Honest, shall we say. I mean, if they don't like you, they'll make it clear. And if they do, they'll, they'll make know it. it know. So, uh, so you did she capture them immediately? Was it one of those moments where suddenly there was this quiet and everyone realized that here was an enormous talent? Yes, that is what happened. And you know what? She realized that she loved the love that she gave, that they gave her. She trans, you know, she transformed applause and approval and pleasure that she was giving the audience into love. Well, that is her transformation. And that's the intimacy that, as you, as we talked yes. earlier, that she had. It wasn't through her life, but it was through her music and her voice. So let's, sorry, I, I jumped in and interrupted, pushing you back to the Apollo, but go, mm, go back to good. your narrative now, Judith. Okay, but I, I'm glad you did because I didn't know how long I should go on with this in this vein, because Chick Webb was, you know, it was the first, it was a team. She became, it be, she became part of a team, Chick and Ella. So she elevated his band to superstar status. And when he died, she was so important that she could be the leader of his band. Now, I've heard when I say that, I always remember how people said, well, of course, she didn't really lead the band. She didn't do the business part of the band. Well, that's all true. But without her, the band wouldn't have succeeded. And she took it very seriously. I know she took it seriously because, and here I want to tell the audience something really important about how I became her biographer in a way as she became Ella. I was able to access all the black newspapers that described the other world that Ella Fitzgerald really lived in, the world of all the, of all the communities in black cities all over our country. And I learned that she had interviews in them where she talked about her early life that nobody had seen before because these black newspapers weren't digitized or searchable or they're buried in microfilms like, and you don't know what's what. You, you could spend your life trying to find out information from one newspaper, but now bingo, you don't have to do that. I'm going on about sources because they're so important and I had more sources. And so I learned Ella's own words. I could quote you from interviews in 1939, in 1940 about she wanted to take care of that band and how Chick told her, you gotta be fresh, you can't be left behind, you have to keep up with the times. So we'll stop there and see if you have anything you want to ask me about that whole issue of race sources for someone who is outside of the canon, all this new information that's coming up about black artists. I don't know if you do or not. Well, we're going to take a short break, Judith, now. Okay. Uh, I want to remind everyone we're talking to Judith Tick, the author of a major new biography of Ella Fitzgerald, Becoming Ella Fitzgerald, the jazz singer who transformed American song. Judith is herself a very distinguished musicologist and historian of music um, based uh, in Brookline in Massachusetts, about to move to the West Coast. Uh, I want to remind everyone that such high quality content and guests are brought to you in part by Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, 
excellent new publication, lots of musical and other cultural subjects. Going to run a short feature on liberties, and then we'll be back with Judith Tick to talk more Ella Fitzgerald. So don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. All our guests will get an annual free subscription, including Judith Tick, our guest today, the author of Becoming Ella Fitzgerald. Judith, before the break, you were talking about inside and outside the canon uh, of jazz music, of Black American jazz music. Yeah. Um, did As Ella became herself in terms of becoming Ella Fitzgerald, was there also a canon emerging? Did she build the canon or did she, as she became Ella Fitzgerald, did she fit into it? Well, let's start with the idea that there, there was, it's hard to use the term canon for an art form that started really in the early 1900s. But I'm, I'm trying to think about how to rephrase your question so that it would mean something in different eras. So let's let's pick up the notion of bebop. And bebop, for example, is described mainly in terms of instrumentalists who played bebop, Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie. In the jazz narrative, bebop is described mainly as an instrumental style. Well, Ella Fitzgerald was the kind of artist that pushed that narrative into other places because she began to really develop and cherish her ability to scat and to do vocal bebop. So there was, the bebop wasn't really in the canon because jazz, jazz is too young to really have a thoroughly evolved canon until really after the 1960s. But whatever style is emerging in jazz, and it's such a brilliant art form that it changes every decade and sustains so much gift and uh, genius in the Black artist's world, that she took whatever she wanted and made it her own. So there she is in the late 1940s doing bebop as a vocalist and putting it on the map of possibilities for women, for women vocalists, especially for black women who were really the major leaders in that form. So that's a good example of an evolving canon and being the kind of artist who pushes it into new places. Does that speak yeah, to your- Yeah, it's very helpful. You mentioned Billie Holiday earlier, of course. Many people will be mm -hmm. her work too. How would you fit Ella Fitzgerald into the the narrative of great jazz singers, female jazz singers in in black jazz singers in American history? Was she was aware she, of being part of that narrative, or she, was she just Billy? Oh, sorry, Ella. <laughs> you know, it's funny that you confuse Billy and Ella because you know the narrative runs. Oh my goodness, Bessie Smith, the blues singer. There's a co kind of chain of black yeah. singers. Is a 
second narrative in American jazz history. Um, but it's not really taught that way. And I think that I don't want to get into too involved discussions about two canons, what's the public think the canon is and what higher education and textbooks, the pedagogical canon is, because that's a pretty complicated subject. But I think that swing singers in the 30s were aware that they didn't have to be blues singers anymore. And I think pop blacks, pop, black pop singers in the 40s were aware they could do bop. Then in the 50s, you could see a whole world called jazz pop that the amazing scholar Will Friedwald has pioneered, this kind of hybrid, one foot in pop, one foot in jazz, and mixing them so that some third form came through. And Ella was a leader in that. I think she was a powerful example of how you didn't have to stick to, quote, one category. You know, America is famous for its hybridity. And Ella used to say, I'm not, don't typecast me. Don't typecast me. I'm not just one kind of singer. So that is someone who can get rid of this tightness around a canon that we can only listen to this person or that person. She gets rid of that because that's who she was in her own life. If you prize versatility, then you prize freedom because you have the freedom to choose. Judith, that, uh, it's a very good response. Um, <laughs> I'm having a good time with you. Thank you. Uh, what about her relationship with white America? Um, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems as if two things were happening uh, over the course of Ella Fitzgerald's life. It's perhaps part, at least, of the narrative of becoming Ella Fitzgerald. On the one hand, this was still a country of enormous institutionalized racism of Jim Crow. On the yes. other hand, jazz music was becoming more and more mainstream, more and more white people were listening to black uh, jazz. What was her relationship both in fact and, in, and from her point of view um, outside her own community, outside uh, the African-American community in terms of uh, listeners, relationships, and indeed business? Well, first of all, we want to understand what the power of media is. When Ella came up with Chick Webb's band, she was he was signed to a record company, Decca, so she made records. <clears throat> when you make records, you get into everybody's home or mm. everybody's access through jukeboxes. And the tumultuous conflicts around race that are, in, that are part of our American history are recede. And another thing is that musicians are, uh, are and music is one of those meeting grounds where the need to express yourself really overtakes the need to, I don't, to belong, I don't, how can I say it? It transcends the, it transcends the conflicts of race and gender sometimes, at least the possibilities are there because they were mixed bands. And eventually Ella became famous working with a troupe of mixed race musicians. So I, and she played for different kinds of audiences in the forties, she was in the black theater circuit and in jazz clubs where there were mixed race audiences. In the fifties, she's touring in Europe, which is free to 
anyone in mixed race audiences there because there's so many soldier, black soldiers in Europe and white soldiers in Europe after the war. So she did not get hampered in reaching out to other, to through records as much as other artists did. You know, I'm not really satisfied with that answer because I'm combining live performance with media and records and radio allow you to transcend some of these issues around race, racism, racism. Yeah, it allows you to get by them in some way. She also dealt with Jane Crow, which is a term that came into fashion really with Pauli Murray, a wonderful lawyer, a civil rights lawyer. Yeah, we've done some shows actually on Pauli Murray. Okay. I don't know. I'm wandering around here. Do you want to uh, well, get I me good to wonder. That's what uh, Ella did in Becoming Ella Fitzgerald. Um, Judith, Ella, of course, sadly is no longer around, although she'd probably be right. very old now if she was. Has she arrived? Or is Ella Fitzgerald still becoming? Do all artists become? and never really arrive because every new generation treats them differently and interprets them differently. I assume that was a big thing influencing how you thought about writing this biography. You're shaping, in a way, you, you're forcing Ella Fitzgerald to become, even if she's still becoming. Well, that's what writers and historians want to do. The artist, are, the artists are giving us their experiences. They don't really control how we interpret them, and they're not supposed to. And we're not, we're we're not supposed to ask them to do that outside of what they give us. So she gave us many different kinds of music. I'd like to talk a little bit about the Ella after the songbooks and after her big pop jazz world in the 1960s, because a really rather extraordinary thing happened with her. And that is that she began a whole other level of becoming as she got older. She toured a little bit less, although she had a pretty hectic schedule, but she had a new label. You know, Ella had an incredible manager named Norman Granz, and he's the one who shaped the genre of the songbooks for her in the 50s. They stayed partners in an active world, and then she lost a label in the 1960s and really went through a kind of wandering period herself, taking on soul and getting influenced by new developments in black music. And then Norman Grant started another label for all those people he felt weren't getting heard as they aged, including Count Basie and even Duke Ellington. And Ella was among them. And this amazing thing happened Grands found this lovely young middle-aged classical bebop guitarist named Joe Pass. He realized that he had unearthed a major talent and he hooked Joe Pass up with everybody in his troupe. Joe and Oscar Peterson, for example, Joe and Ray Brown, Joe and Count Basie. But for Ella, it was Joe and Ella in a spectacular way because she developed a whole set of recordings that are duets. And you know, people who love Ella know about Louis Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald, and they, we love them because what we hear is friendship and empathy mm. between two. Okay, we hear that, and we hear their two different voices. Well, 
Here is Joe Pass coming into Ella's life just when she needs that soulmate. When you hear her on live dates and on recordings in this intimate relationship, totally intimate with Joe Pass looking up at her, waiting for every melody note to drop, you see this new iteration of friendship and empathy and loving music making. We're so lucky because we have these clips from dates abroad and dates in American television. We have television and YouTube to bring us live moments that are so magical. We can see Ella becoming more of this other side of herself. She just got liberated through a whole other way of handling her acts and including this intimacy with the Joe Pass. Yeah, many people I think will be introduced to Ella through the, the Ken Burns documentary, the jazz documentary, which does a, a very good job, I think, uh, in the period. Fi finally, Judith, uh, and, and I think it's a good compliment uh, to, to your book and books like yours. Finally, for young jazz singers, particularly African-American jazz singers these days, jazz yes. is not quite as mainstream and dominant as obviously mm -hmm. in Ella's time. But what's her legacy? What's her influence on, on, on young musicians, young singers, maybe not just jazz, rap, hip hop today? I think it's twofold. First of all, there are the songbooks which she elevated into canonic status. And we really talk about the great American songbook, I think mainly because of Ella Fitzgerald and the legacy that was shaped around her in many different directions. And young singers tell me they always go back to those songbooks. Quincy Jones wrote about that too in the 60s. Go mm. back and learn that material. The other legacy is to explore yourself because Ella used to say, I don't wanna be left behind. I don't need to be anybody but myself. I'm always experimenting, I'm always changing. I'm just me. I think that's such a beautiful set of beliefs and set of values that you are going to reach out to your audience through yourself. That's what I think. 